Episode 93 of the Bevan James Isles Show, the Fitness Behaviour Podcast, an interview with Matt Fitzgerald. Team, welcome along to episode number 93 of the Bevan James Oz Show, the Fitness Behaviour Podcast, the fortnightly podcast that goes over the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness so that you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. have to say, we are we are heading into our summer in New Zealand and, you know, summer's for most people one of the more enjoyable seasons of the year, although I live in a place called Christchurch and we very much get the seasons, so you get the four parts of the year. You get a really traditional autumn, winter, spring and summer. But one of the things I love the most about summer is the long days. And in Christchurch, now this isn't the same everywhere in the world, but in Christchurch, at this time of the year, like I get up and I go to teach fitness and I'm up at, you know, I leave home generally at 5.30 in the morning and from 5.30 in the morning now, even before then, through to about 9 o'clock at night, we've got sunlight. And I have to say, it just makes me happy. <laughs> it just makes me happy. I love it. So I just just want to share that with you. I'm feeling very happy today because of the sunlight. Team, this this episode of the Bevan James Isles Show, I have to say I'm pretty excited because we've got a really great interview with a guy called Matt Fitzgerald. Matt Fitzgerald is one of the world's leading endurance sports writers. He's written over 20 books. It may even be in excess of 30. He's been around for a very, very long time. And 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 the thing I love about Matt is he really does come from the sensibility of what does the research say. And he writes in a way as, as a writer, but also in a way that makes it's, the message sits with you and one of the books that um, we talk a lot about in this interview is called How Bad Do You Want It and I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes for this week's show so you can go to bevanjamesisles.com and you can see the show notes and you can get that book there and I'll link that to, on Amazon but it's just he's in this book what he does really well is he kind of tells a story and then within that story then he goes to the research around what's the kind of the mind strategies or, or the mindset that is allowed success in here. And so I thought, I read his book a while ago, and I thought to myself, I should get him on the show. Now, Matt Fitzgerald is also very renowned with the nutrition and training kind of concepts in endurance sport. And so when I interviewed him for this show, I also interviewed him for my other podcast, which is called uh, I Am Talk. And it's a triathlon show. And we talked about nutrition on the triathlon one. So we kind of, I've actually released the interview on I Am Talk with Matt last week. But what I wanted to do is I, I actually, I'm going to put both interviews in today's show. Now this show here, I'd stay away from nutrition. I, I kind of, it's a big topic. It's a bit messy, and I, you know, I always think my job as a fitness professional is to get people moving, and so I, I'm always into the kind of how do we get people moving, and you guys know I'm more into the mind side of those things. So the first interview I do with Matt is about the book, How Bad Do You Want It? But then the second interview I do, which we released on I Am Talk, which I'm going to put in today's show, is about a book he's released that doesn't actually come out till end of December. Now I know that lots of people in the future will be listening to this and you can probably go to Amazon right now and get that book. But basically it's a book about where he looked at the world's top endurance athletes and looked at their diets and then contrasted it with what's happening with most age group athletes. And it was a really interesting, really interesting insights in that kind of conversation we had as well. And I have to admit, I liked what he was speaking about, and he kind of said on the same page that I said on in regards to nutrition. So, in some ways, it was, uh, 
you know, I'll put that on the show because I kind of agree with what he's saying. But at the same time, it's just, you know, I think it's a really good interview. So I'm going to put two interviews on today. The first interview, which was intended for this show, then I'll do a quick outro. And then after that, I'll put Matt's second interview, which is a bit more about nutrition. So you guys can listen to that. I'm not going to spend much time talking about other things today because we've got lots of content coming up. So I'm just going to say a big thank you to all the patrons on the show. You guys are a massive reason that, that this show happens. And if you want to become a patron, you go to bevanjamesisles.com. It's all very simple. You just click on the Patreon page. You go on there and then every time I release a show, you just, the amount that you want to share will be donated to the show. And it makes a matter. It really does, guys. So a few patrons that are already a part of the show. We've got Robbie Allen, the big shot. We've got Gemma and Glenn Mitchell and they are Team Divine. We actually had dinner with those guys the other night. It was quite fun. Libby Olin Hilda. Uh, Rebecca Blue Eyes Spears. I've got someone, The Marvelous, but I haven't got their first name. Oh, I'm sorry for that person. If you know who you are, flick me an email and I'll let you know. That I'll put your name in front there, but you're The Marvelous. We've got Bernadette Parry, Soul Calibre, and got Matt Axurus, and he's Forrest Warhol. These guys are amazing patrons of the show, guys. I really appreciate everything you do for me. And uh, if you want to become a patron, go to bevanjamesisles.com. Anyway, guys, I'm going to put the music on because here is Matt Fitzgerald. Righto, team. I'm very excited to have a, a bit of a legend, really, in, in the sport of endurance sport. He's been one of the most prolific content creators in endurance sport, and uh, in many ways, uh, not just you know getting lots of content out there, but kind of high level content in uh, nutrition. Uh, and training strategies and also in mind strategies and uh, I just thought it'd be really great to get him on the show because you know the show is very much about kind of mind strategies and things like that and so I thought it'd be really good to get him on the show so we've got Matt Fitzgerald on the show how you go mate I'm doing well how are you uh, I'm really good so um so today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, how bad do you want it was which was your previous book yeah I know you've got another book coming out right now but Let's just start off a little bit with yourself. Maybe just give the audience a little bit of a kind of an introduction to Matt. Sure. So I'm coming at you from the great state of California. Um, I grew up on the opposite side of the United States in New Hampshire. Um, been a runner most of my life. Uh, my dad, my father was running marathons back in the, uh, the early mid 1980s when I was growing up. And so I, I caught the, the running bug from him. Um, my father's also a writer, um, and I, I guess I got the inherited the the writing knack from him as well. Um, so, you know, like I said, I've been running most of my life and, and writing about running uh, ever since I um, graduated from from college, and then uh, branched into triathlon in the late 1990s and started coaching shortly after that. And so, tell us about your own athletic career, because in your book you talk a little bit about how. You know, you you were a pretty decent athlete as a young person, and then there was a kind of a fadeaway period, and then you came back into sports. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, you know, when I ran in high school, um, I I I had some success, and um, you know, developed into one of the one of the better cross country runners in in my state. It was a small state, so I wasn't I wasn't bound for the Olympics or anything, but I did okay. Uh, but then ran into problems with. Um, uh, the mental side of the sport. Um, it wasn't so much the pressure to to win um, as uh, the fear of the suffering involved. You know, endurance sports are, you know, they're not fun in the way that, you know, football is or, you know, cricket or, <laughs> or, 
or whatever. You know, there's no ball. There's no no teammates per se. You know, you're really out there on your own. And it's very painful. Um, and I, I really struggled with that dimension of the sport. I could just feel it when I was, you know, when I was dashing toward the finish line of a race neck and neck with a rival. I could just feel that that other person next to me uh, was tougher than I am, was, you know, willing to dig deeper than I was. And it really just uh, it, it got worse and worse. And I became a classic head case and it, it just spoiled the experience for me. I ended up, you know, quitting. Um, uh, I was, you know, I was going to run in college, but ended up not doing that, and then not getting back into the running until I was in my mid twenties. And when, and when that happened, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to become the athlete I, I, could have been, you know, if I hadn't quit. Mm. But also, more than anything, I wanted to get the the monkey off my back of of seeing myself as mentally weak. You know, I, nobody wants to see themselves as a coward. And I really did. Wow. Um, so in my in my second, you know, in my in my rebirth as an athlete, that was very, very important to me to really tackle the mental side of the sport and become strong where I had previously been weak. So so you know, you're kind of saying I was almost scarred by the, the the experience of quitting, you know, this kind of the pressure got too much for me. It became an experience that wasn't that enjoyable, and so I I kind of quit. And then I saw myself as I labelled myself as a coward or not brave or whatever that is for you. What was the tipping point which made you think, no, I need to move back? Um, you know, it it was just uh, it, I, I don't know. I kind of think I, I would have gotten back into it regardless. But but what happened was um, after I graduated from uh, university. I moved to California with the intent of just at this point I was out of shape and overweight. You know, I was I had not been running for years. I lifted weights, but I you know, I wasn't really, you know, I would get winded climbing a flight of stairs at this point <laughs> in my life. And my you know, I wanted to be a writer. Um, and so I was just going to get the first decent writing job I could find in San Francisco. It turned out that that job was with a startup endurance sports magazine. Oh, okay. um, so, you know, I, I, I wasn't training or fit at the time, but suddenly I was surrounded by endurance athletes again, and it just lit the spark. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I saw, you know, it, it, it was the competitive side of it. I looked around at some of the people I was working with and thought, you know, I could kick their butts if I got back in shape. <laughs> and so that started the process. You know, it's a slippery slope. At first you think you're going to be somewhat casual about it. Um, you know, maybe only train every other day, but you know, a little leads to more and pretty soon you're just sucked all the way in. So, so you, you know, you've written a lot of books on again endurance sports. Definitely your area of expertise. Um, when it, when you think about this book and uh, how bad do you want it, leading into it, what was your perspective leading into it? Well, you know, um, I I have an older brother who uh, studied uh, brain science. Oh wow! Um, and yeah, so he would, <laughs> which is is fascinating stuff. And and he would tell me about the things he was learning um, and sort of share. He would suggest, you know, books to read about brain science that were intended for a lay audience. So you didn't have to be a scientist. And I, I started, you know, reading some of these books and thought, well, this is really fascinating stuff. And then around the same time, exercise scientists started to pay attention to the brain really for the first time. So, you know, you know um, our former president here, uh, Bill Clinton, referred to the 1990s as the decade of the brain. Uh, because, you know, there were new technologies and methodologies that allowed us to kind of open up that black box, you know, of our heads and see inside for the first time ever. So it revolutionized a lot of areas of science, including sports science. And I felt like because of my brother's influence, I sort of was maybe a step ahead of a lot of other, uh, you know, endurance coaches where mm -hmm. I actually was a little bit more comfortable 
than others might be with some of the terminology and you know the anatomy and all that stuff. So I, you know, I began, and plus I had this longstanding interest in the psychology of endurance sports, just as an athlete who struggled with that dimension of it. So, uh, you know, I began, you know, reading a lot about this stuff, the work of Tim Noakes, you know, the legendary exercise physiologist from South Africa, and, um, and just, you know, reading about it, learning and, and writing about it. You know, I, I did a book called Brain Training for Runners uh, in, back in 2007. Um, and so, but this science continues to evolve. You know, there's mm. a, a leading researcher now whose name is Samuela Marcora. He's an uh, Italian researching in, uh, in the U.K., um, and, uh, he wrote the forward forward to my book. So he, you know, so there's, there's constantly new stuff happening and, and new stuff and my own thinking evolves, especially as I apply it. So there was just more to say on the subject at the same time, over the years, I've been collecting a lot of great stories, uh, from the world of endurance sports, um, stories, you know, um, I wrote iron war, uh, another <laughs> book of mine about, you know, the classic rivalry between Dave Scott and Mark Allen in the 1980s that led to what many people consider, you know, the greatest endurance sports race of all time. And a lot of these, these stories, I'm a, I'm a fan of endurance sports and, you know, I'm the kind of person who can, you know, I can watch a marathon and it's not like watching grass grow the way way it might be for other people. And so, you know, what led, I'm getting to, to around to answering your question, what led to this specific book is that I thought, you know, these stories that I've, you know, these stories of, um, you know, great, great endurance sports athletes who have faced huge setbacks or moments of adversity and overcome them somehow. Uh, they really exemplify um, the, the kind of psychological coping skills that every athlete needs in order to master that dimension of the sport and fulfill their potential. But these stories also they serve as a great way to make some of, some of the science, which can get kind of heady, um, you know, it's sort of like hiding spinach in a casserole to get your kids to eat. <laughs> you, know, you know, if I, I felt like if I just wrote a straight book that was all 100 percent brain science applied to endurance sport, people wouldn't read it. You know, mm. you know, so I thought, you know, to, to combine the narrative, these these true stories that kind of show the science at work um, would be a way to make people kind of uh, understand it and, and have a sense of how to apply it in, in their own uh, you know, search for improvement as athletes. I, I do love the way it's written. It's it's kind of like a Gladwell approach, isn't it? There's these kind of really powerful stories, and they are really powerful. And I'm an endurance athlete, so I kind of I love the stories. But you know, even those people who aren't endurance athletes, you will, for a lot of this audience aren't. It's a kind of you know, you just get pretty inspired by these stories. And as you say, you kind of tell the story and then kind of get the message in there throughout the story as well. And it's done quite well. Thank you. Yeah. So one thing you talk about in the book is this idea of perceived exertion. So maybe you could describe to us, um, you know, this idea of what is perceived exertion and what we should be looking to do to improve perceived exertion. Because, uh, you know, for a lot of people listening to this, they might be doing any exercise at all or right. they're very entry level or lower level. So, you know, you know, when we think of the people doing Ironman and stuff like that, that's a completely different beast. But for right. those who maybe don't have that kind of next level understanding, what is perceived exertion and how do you talk about maybe the next levels of perceived exertion? Sure. Yeah, so the term I actually prefer, and I'm, I'm, I'm guided by this on the researchers like Samuela Marcora, who I mentioned before, uh, he, he's kind of switched over to perceived effort. Perceived exertion is more about how intense an exercise effort feels, and perceived effort is more how hard it feels. And the distinction is this. If, if you start off at a dead sprint, 
Um, it's very intense and it's very hard from the beginning, but you could also start off exercising at a slow jog. It's not intense, but if you keep up that slow jog for several hours, it will become just as hard as that sprint was mm. from the beginning. So yeah. that's kind of the distinction between perceived exertion and perceived effort. So, you know, perceived effort is really just your, your global sense of how hard you're working um, at a given moment. So, you know, it, it, it is a perception like any, any other. You can think of, you can make a list of perceptions like feeling hot or cold, feeling thirsty or hungry. Pain is a perception, but they're all distinct. They're all distinct, right? Like you can never con confuse being hungry for being hot. You know, you just, you, you know when you're hungry and you know when you're hot. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and perceived effort is the same thing. You know, it, it's just another perception that is really distinct from any other. So, you know, you might be running and you, and you could feel some pain in your legs, but that pain is distinct from your effort, which is your sense. It's almost just like your body's resistance to your mind's will, you know, to, to move. Um, and it's, it's critically important, um, for anyone who exercises because, you know, exercise is hard, <laughs> you know, because, because you feel effort, you know, it mm. takes an effort to do it. That's the reason most people don't exercise much at all. You know, if it felt like sex, everyone would do it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's also, you know, so it prevents a lot of people from exercising at all, but it also is what separates you know, the great from the merely good, you know, if you look at people who are actually trying to make a, a living or go to the Olympics, you know, someone who has the capacity to handle a higher level of perceived effort than another athlete who is equally talented physically, who works just as hard, that could be all that separates, you know, gold and silver, you know, as it were. So, you know, all the way up from the bottom, from the base to the top of the pyramid, you know, perceived effort is, is crucially important. And one thing you talked about, which I, I was really fascinated by, was this whole idea of that if I think it's going to be easy, my perceived effort is less. Whereas if I perceive that the race is going to be hard or, or the, the activity I'm going to do is actually the perceived effort seems to be less because I've prepared myself for a, a higher level. Right. Yeah. You know, that's called bracing yourself. Um, and, you know, it, it's a good idea just as a matter of, you know, psychological coping if you, if you're if you're facing an experience that will be challenging it's best to know it and accept it you know you will perform better and just have um uh it you know you'll be able to cope you know with the experience better whether it's uh experience that's going to be painful or you know experience that's going to be emotionally challenging or you know one like you, you wouldn't want to go to military boot camp and think oh, this is going to be a cakewalk you know because mm -hmm. you're just you're not psychologically prepared same thing if you're going to do, you know, run a marathon, you know, if you just sort of, you know, just kind of naively hope, you know, maybe it will just be miraculously easy. You're setting yourself up for um, sort of a, a rude awakening, you know, when, when, it, when it inevitably is hard, you're not ready for it. Um, so, yeah, there's some interesting research showing that um, when you brace yourself in this way um, and you, then and then, then you, um, you know, it experience either, you know, pain or perceived effort in an exercise context. It's not that you feel it less, but you, but you um, are bothered by it less. And that actually allows you to perform at a higher level. It's interesting. I had a funny experience last weekend. I, I have this running groups so I, I kind of coordinate and uh, we, we, we really try to target the new exerciser. And so we get people who have done nothing. We're getting we're doing 5Ks, 10Ks, and, and we're getting up to the half marathon. And last weekend we took a 
bunch of massive bunch of runners to a half marathon and many of them it was their first half marathon and it was a really exa- good example of this because for these people it's very much about nurturing it's not like the elite athlete who's kind of trying to thrive and find their next level it's very much just trying to get into the finish of their first half marathon and right. and many of the newer ones last weekend actually had a pretty bad day and upon reflection and upon reading your work it's been really interesting reflecting upon we prepared them physically and we got them to the point where they knew they could achieve the goal so we got them up to 19 k's and and they felt quite comfortable in the 19 k's and in some ways, we probably made them think it was that they were going to be easy enough to get through the race. And then when they got to the race, it was a little bit hot, a little bit windy, and they hadn't perceived that it was going to be harder. I think that we'd almost made it a little bit too easy in their head. And so many of right. them kind of were disappointed in their race because they kind of gave up when it got hard. Now, it's a fine line because with a newer exerciser, you are kind of nurturing a little bit more, you know, but maybe the lesson I've learned from that and from some of your work is that, okay, well, I need to nurture them to the point where they can get prepared, but then I also have to mentally prepare them for the challenge that's going to be in front of them. Right. Yeah, there's... um. You know, bracing that strategy of bracing yourself, it sounds on the surface a lot like pe- pessimism. Mm. It's like, oh, like I'm going to fail. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's not what you're doing. You, 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 you know, you, optimism is I believe I'm ready to achieve my goal. Bracing yourself is, but it's going to be very difficult, you know, mm. to achieve. So that, you know, th- there's a balance there. You want to be optimistic and positive and expect success, but you also want to expect to, suffer for it or, or work for it or just be be ready um yeah for sure in your book you talk a, a lot about this kind of you know you, you talk about these kind of theories and one of them was that kind of the failure theory you know whole idea of that um failing is a good thing because it, it creates this kind of driver or there's a, there's a term some kind of angry term i can remember you using um you know like how does that work? Because, you know, for a lot of people, they don't have the ability to fail and keep coming back. You know, so right. for some people, it becomes this kind of angry driver that pushes them through to a higher level. But then, you know, for a lot of people who maybe aren't elite athletes, one point of failure means I give up. Uh, so right. maybe, maybe talk to us a little bit about the, for those people who do fail, but actually use it as a, as a way to make them more successful moving forward. What are some yeah. of the things you learned from that? Yeah, so that, that chapter is really about the phenomenon of resilience. Um, so the, there's a lot of talk in the book about coping skills, and, and there are a variety of them. But resilience is sort of the mother of all coping skills because that's what, when, that's what gets you up off the floor when you've been knocked down um, and allows you to develop the more specific coping skills that, that you need. So without resilience, you, you, you will quit you know, the first time you get knocked down. And people have different, you know, this is sort of psychologists talk a lot about it. And, you know, there's a spectrum as there is with, with any other, you know, mental quality. Like some people are super resilient. Some people, you know, just crumble if you blow on them. <laughs> and uh, what some of this re- research has shown, which is really interesting, is that people um, who have a high level of resilience, typically they, they, they had a childhood where they faced um, a significant amount of adversity but not a crushing amount of, of adversity. So there's sort of a bell curve. Like if you have, and I, I can sort of relate to this because I think one of the reasons I might have struggled as an athlete at, in, in my youth is that I had sort of a golden childhood, you know, mm. just like I, you know, great parents, stable family, grew up in a nice place. You know, I had no trauma, you know, nothing really yeah. went wrong. Yeah. Uh, so, so my personal experience kind of jives with the research that shows that you sort of, you don't want to be, you don't want to grow up in a war zone. 
for you know, for the sake of resilience, you don't want to grow up in a war zone, and you don't want to have you know a pampered, spoiled childhood either. Like somewhere in the middle, uh, where you face adversity and learn to to deal with it, but not so much adversity that you know it kind of breaks you down mentally. Um, so you know, but you know, say say you're someone like me who had a you know yeah. just a golden childhood, and you want to become more resilient later as an adult. You know, then what do you do? Um, and in the book, I talk about some examples of really, you know, elite level athletes who maybe, uh, you know, had had to do just that, that maybe resilience was the one thing they were missing. They almost had, um, you know, I talk about Cadell Evans, uh, mm. that he's really the focus of that chapter mm. where he was just like, he was born to win the Tour de France. You know, he just had an unbelievable amount of talent. He got an early start on the bike. He got the, to train at the Australian Institute of Sport from the time he was a teenager, where he had uh, like all the best facilities, coaches, other athletes to train with. It was just like the road was like, you know, it was paved for him to win the Tour de France. But then he went there and lost and came back a year later and lost again, came back a year later and lost again. And it seemed like the one thing he really needed to, to um, reach the top, because he eventually did win the race in his seventh try, was he needed those failures. You know, he, he needed that adversity in order to, um, you know, gain that that last bit of resilience, which was the only thing he was lacking. So maybe another athlete in his place would have just would have crumbled and, you know, you know, stop stop racing the Tour de France after losing it one or two times. Mm-hmm. So he had enough resilience to stay in the game, but he you know, he didn't have enough right away necessarily to win it, you know, or the first time uh, he tried. So what happens is, you know, when you want when you want something, when you have a goal and you you fail to achieve it, and and the failure becomes repeated. Eventually, one of two things are, is going to happen: either you will be broken by it, or you'll get angry. <laughs> and you know, we, we tend to think of anger as a negative emotion, but it isn't always. There's a reason we have, you know, it's it's deeply instinctual to become angry in certain situations. And sometimes, you know, there's research showing that anger is performance enhancing, or it can be mm. in the right circumstances. So sometimes, like. You know, that's what you need is just um, that uh, angry resolve is the is the, the the phrase you were searching for before. It's like, you know, when you when you when you get fed up with failure, you get this. And that's exactly what Cadell Evans had you know, in the year he finally won the, the tours that he had that angry resolve where he was sick of losing. And he just sort of had a, another attitude that propelled him to, to victory in his seventh try. For, for you, you know, in your personal experience, you're saying I, I was a kid who had the good upbringing, you know, love and support. And, and, and in some ways I lacked that resilience. And then I kind of, you know, it kind of ultimately led to a downfall and, you know, where I kind of lacked a bit of courage. And then I came back. So what was the perspective that helped you find resilience? You know, um, it, it, was, it was a mix of things. Um, probably the most important element was um, intent, where, hmm. where becoming becoming mentally strong was an explicit goal that I set. So I didn't necessarily know how to achieve it right away, but it made all the difference that I knew and could articulate that that's what I wanted. So I remember, you know, early in this process, I would do races where I would just, um, I would grade myself on mental toughness. Like after the race, it wasn't so much about, you know, what was my time or what was my place? It was, did I leave it all out there? And if I didn't, I, I wasn't satisfied with that. So, you know, I just I, I just I paid attention to that. And, um, you know, I held myself to a high standard. Um, and, you know, it did, it did not happen overnight. Even, you know, when I came back to running as an adult, I still struggled where, 
I would just get painfully nervous before race, just, you know, fearing uh, the suffering. Um, and so, you know, there were other things that sort of helped, like uh, getting to interact with elite athletes uh, helped me because I saw that they were actually just like me, you know, mm-hmm. like these, I mean, they were, they had more talent, more inborn talent, but they, they were normal humans who, who also had fear and who also didn't really like suffering. And, but they had even more pressure, you know, because these, it's their livelihood. So, you know, as I, I, I tell people all the time, imagine you're standing on the start line of the Boston Marathon and you're the person who is expected to win it. Like, imagine yeah. how much pressure yeah. you would feel. Well, guess what? The person who is on that start line, who is expected to win it, feels that pressure. Yeah, yeah. You know, being able to cope with that on your shoulders. And it's really impressive and it's humbling. And so I sort of used that. It was just, um, it's one of the advantages of the work I do is I get to interact with some of the world's best endurance athletes. And it can really inspire you in almost a shaming kind of way sometimes because you, you see what, you know, these people are able to do, you know, just, uh, just as normal human beings with a little, with a little extra talent. So those were some of the ingredients that allowed, allowed me to, to get that monkey off my back. But it's kind of ironic because in your book, you, there's a study that talks about the marathon group where they got a people, group of people and they're looking at who faded away from the group and who kind of stuck to it. And those who were kind of more, image-based or diet trying to lose weight they tend to have a bigger fall-off rate whereas those were a bit more kind of self-discovery learning about themselves that kind of life journey those are the people who actually tend to have a bit more resilience ultimately and I think that's what you're saying there is that yourself early on your career you didn't have that but then when you put your focus or your intent on this whole idea of I'm just trying to get to a high level of self then you're able to find that resilience in those tough times yes and that study you you just referenced also speaks to motivation. Mm. Um, you know, the, obviously, the more motivated you are to achieve a goal, you know, the more effort you will put into it, and and the more likely you'll be able to overcome you know the setbacks that are that are inevitable. And when you know when you're looking for motivation, it it it's deeply personal. Different things motivate different different people. And so for me, yes, like. You know, being an athlete was uh, it. It wasn't about making money for me because you know, I, that's you know, I wasn't that good. Um, <laughs> you know, but yeah, but it was um, it was crucially important, like to how I saw myself as a person. Um, you know, I wanted I wanted to be strong. You know, and, and to know myself as a strong person. And so, you know, I used athletics uh, to to develop in that way, and it 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 meant. I can't think of many things that could have meant more to, to me, you know, so so I had the motivation to see through see through that process. But for other people, it's different things, you know, for, you know, I, I don't have children, but for I, I talk to a lot of athletes who are parents and for them, it's setting an example for their children is the, there's nothing more motivating for them than that. And that can that can drive them through walls, you know, to to achieve goals. So, that, you know, that's a big part of it is finding, you know, what is it? What is it for me? Why does this matter to me? What makes it worth it? Mm. Well, it's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to this show who you know, are struggling with exercise and, and often they are trying to find, you know, how do I lose 20 kgs, but maybe, you know, that idea of what is the real motivation that's going to tap in for me and, you know, and then how do I make sure that comes to the forefront of my mind as I kind of set my path forward? Yeah, there's um, in, in yet another book of, that I wrote in the past, one called Diet Cults. Um, I talk a little bit about that. So, you know, we, we've been talking about endurance sports, but if you if you're shift the discussion to weight weight loss what what you find is that most people who succeed in in losing a substantial amount of weight and 
keep it off failed number a number of times in the past. So the the people who succeed in losing weight are the same people who fail. <laughs> they're not they're they're not different people. And usually what what the difference is, you know, I talked to a bunch of them for for this book, it's it was the motivation. You know, it's not that they found a better diet, you know, it's not that, you know, it's not rocket science. You mm. know what you need to do, yeah. you know, just eat, eat a little less, eat high quality higher quality foods and 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 exercise, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's it's not about finding what works. Um, it's it's about finding the motivation or just, you know, it's the right motivation at the right time uh, for a lot of people. Mm. You, you tell a great story and being a Kiwi, this one really put my ears. And I actually remember these athletes about a couple of rowers um, from New Zealand who just did not fit the mold. And, uh, and it, the chapter starts with this great kind of analogy of them getting the Olympic gold medal. And I remember at the time, because it was quite big in New Zealand at the time, these, so for those who don't know the story, a couple of Kiwi guys won the Olympic rowing medal in, in the double skulls or something. I'm not quite sure what event it was, but, um, and it looked like there were two hobbits basically standing next to yes. <laughs> athletes on the side. Seriously, just think of two hobbits standing next to two athletes, kind of characters in Lord of the Rings. And that's what these guys were. And and the kind of, I think it was the workaround effect was the chapter. Um, and the whole idea of there are limits in physiology, but we can disprove them. And, you know, it was, to me in some ways, the thing about that chapter was that many people put limits on themselves. And actually, if you're willing to, look outside that you can still progress ultimately is probably the message really isn't it right yeah I, those are some of my favorite stories that I, I you know I told you I collect great stories yeah. from, from the world of endurance sports and when 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 athletes who physically have quote unquote the wrong body to excel in their sport when they do it anyway yeah. um, it those are those are beautiful stories um, and yeah so it's uh, Nathan Cohen and, and Joseph Sullivan um, yeah, I don't know anything about rowing, but I, you know, I, I boned up to write that chapter. But it, yeah, it's a great story, and there are others like that. And if you go back, if you trace it back to the beginning, it, it's the same pattern every time. Where you know, usually they get involved in a sport, uh, not because they have the right body for it, but because they love it. You know, and you know, maybe they show some early talent, but because they don't look the part, um, they face roadblocks. Uh, you know, for Cohen and Sullivan, it was just like the national team selectors would just not pick them, you yeah. know, to be... Even though they were so dominant, you know, like it, right, exactly. you know, it wasn't like they were just on the verge. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, well, you're too short, but <laughs> or whatever. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you, you see this, you know, you see this happen. And so, but these athletes, again, it's another example of, well, they could they could believe the coach and say, well, maybe I maybe I sh maybe I can't be a rower after all. But they don't. You know, they're challenged by it. it. They have a, it puts a chip on their shoulder. It's the, the I'll show you attitude. And in a child, that's either in you or it's not really, you know, mm -hmm. like there's got to be some spark, some fire in, 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 in these athletes who, who said, you know, the reaction is I'll show you. Um, and it's great, you know, because, you know, we all face limits of some kind. We all have an excuse to, to fail in, in one way or, or another. And if we don't now, we will eventually, you know, in that same chapter, I talk about an American runner who uh, uh, developed a, a huge uh, tumor in her hamstring muscle that had to be removed. Mm. And in order to take out the tumor, they had to take out the entire muscle. So this is an, this is an elite professional runner who no longer has one of her hamstring muscles. You know, she recovered from the cancer, but her doctor surgeon said, you know, good luck running again. But she actually came back and was better than, than ever. So and it was that same type of thing. It's like, 
all right, on physically, there's no reason I should be able to do this, but I'm just going to try anyway. And and it's amazing how adaptable you are. That's why the, the title of that chapter is The Workaround Effect. Mm. It's, you know, if you just say, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to, it, I don't care if it doesn't make sense, I'm just going to try anyway. You'd be amazed how, how you can adapt. Just, just a couple of quick points. Um, the, the chapter around letting go, I, I, th- I think there's such a, important message in that you know because there's this kind of you know like I, I deal with a lot of new exercises and when you deal with new exercises there's just so much baggage um and 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 baggage it's just it's a weight on them that really ultimately is just taking them you know pulling them down from moving forward uh, and it was such a powerful chapter to me in some ways and so maybe maybe give us a little bit of description around what the kind of letting go theory or, or what you're kind of the message you're trying to get across here Sure. Yeah. So that chapter was about the, the focus of that chapter was uh, an American triathlete named Siri Lindley, um, who back around 1999, 2000, she was the best American triathlete. And in that year, triathlon became an Olympic sport for the first time. And she wanted that. Uh, she wanted that badly. Um, and she was considered a shoe in to make the team. There were going to be three three positions available for female American athletes. And she failed to make the team because in both of the selection races, she choked. You know, just a classic case of underperforming because the, the pressure broke her. Um, and um, in the book, I mentioned that the the official scientific term for choking is choking. Yeah, it's like that made me laugh. Yeah, <laughs> they, they use the same word. <laughs> I've gone deep with that one. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so I, you know, when I explored the research on that subject, um, uh, what I learned was that choking tends to come from hyper self consciousness. So, you know, when you when you under, when you underperform, whether it's a math test or, you know, public speaking or athletics or whatever, it's it's because you're thinking about yourself too much. You're too you're too self-aware. And often that comes from low self-esteem or, or insecurity. So so that's the sort of baggage I think you're referring to is that if you have if you have those issues and then you're put in a situation where there's there's you you feel pressure to perform, it turns your attention inward and it, it destroys you know, your opportunity to, to, to fulfill your potential. Mm. Um, so overcoming that often, it, it was at least for Siri Lindley, was uh, what, what it required of her was she still, it's not that you, you let go of your goals, uh, but you, you don't become, your, self, your self-worth is no longer dependent on achieving those goals. So yeah. for Siri Lindley, it was, if I can just make the Olympics, then I'll, love myself hmm. well the problem was that she didn't love herself hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know it, you know the, the olympics was just um she was sort of getting the cart before the horse it's like it's okay to set a goal for that but but you're but loving yourself or accepting yourself can't depend on achieving that because you just don't control everything you know you can't you can't make that happen um how many people actually get to go to the Olympics? You know, we need to love ourselves regardless. So yeah. she worked with a coach, fortunately, who kind of recognized what her issue was. And and when he when she started training with him, he said, you know what? Just pretend you're retired. Just pretend you, you don't even have these goals anymore. You're no longer a professional. And just love this sport again. Because you got into it because you enjoyed it. And we're gonna work hard, but we're gonna we're gonna stay focused on the process. The you know, just the day-to-day, swimming, biking, running. And then we'll see where that gets you. And it worked. You know, she just sort of she shoved those goals out, out of her mind. And she said, you know, it was like a weight was lifted off her shoulders immediately where she was just always in the moment 
and working hard, but enjoying the process of just, you know, being a triathlete. And she ended up, you know, the year after she missed out on the Olympics, she won the world championship mm. uh, in triathlon. Yeah, and it also interesting that she kind of gave up after that instantly. She had, she had a much longer career in front of her, didn't she? Yeah, which is which is really fascinating yeah, because it, it? it it really showed you that that's what she was in it for, you know, just like she to achieve a certain thing, and mm. then once it really it was never really about triathlon. Yeah, for her. Yeah, it was it fascinating. Was about, yeah. It was just about becoming whole, uh, and you know, once that was, uh, you know, once once she achieved that, you know, there was no, there was no longer any reason. Like, so she went on to coaching and she's become, uh, she's one of the world's best triathlon coaches. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it's largely because she understands the psychological side of the sport so well from the experience she had. There's such a good message in there, isn't there? Because, you know, so many people are trying to achieve a goal because they think the end point is happiness. You know, that, that if I get to this, I'm going to be recognized or accepted or whatever, you know, that, that thing that, you, you know, you talked about there with Siri. And, and, and ultimately, it's the person who's chasing more money, isn't it? The, the, once I get to a million, I'm going to be happy. And, and then you get to a million, right. 10 million, and you're never actually going to get happy. And the shift on yeah. the focus of the enjoyment of the growth and allowing myself just to kind of absorb and seek that is almost the beautiful way to put your focus really, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I mean, goals are important. You know, they, mm. they serve a function, but the, the, the point of a goal is not to achieve it. <laughs> it yeah. really isn't. The, the point of a goal is to inspire your best effort um, and to change you mm. uh, in, in some positive way. So, you know, uh, quite honestly, as, as an athlete, you know, I, I, I still compete, you know, and, and I really don't, care if I achieve my goals or not. It, 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 it's always satisfying when you do, hmm. but it's just, it's where, it's where the pursuit of the goal leads you that ultimately is much more deeply fulfilling. Yeah, well, like for me, it's always been about search of higher self. That's always the thing I always kind of, you know, like it's how do I make today a better day than yesterday kind of thing. It's such a simple way of living, but I love that. And I love that moment when you kind of, you hit something new and then it's like, oh, wow, this, you know, and then you go to a high level of focus, right. and, you know, and, and sure, the outcomes in my life will be better because of I'm searching for this and it's nice to get those outcomes. But ultimately it's like, man, I'm, you know, I love the idea of wisdom and that 10 years from now, whatever this thing I am will be much more wiser. And, you know, to me, that's much more appealing than trying to find the marker that shows that I'm good, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, ultimately, you know, life is a collection of experiences. And, you know, you just like, you, when you're looking back at the end of your life on on the journey you've had, it's, you know, the thing that's going to make you feel good about your life is just having had those rich experiences, not a resume, you, mm, you know, yeah. at that point, it just doesn't matter. And it, and it never should. But it's so I think, you know, I'm only halfway through my journey, I think, I hope, or, but you know, you hear that all the time where, you know, it's just like looking forward, you have one perspective and then looking back, you have another, and you need sort of that looking back perspective when, when you're still early in the journey to recognize that it's really the experiences, uh, that, that make life worth living. So just lastly, you know, you, you, you go into this project with this kind of, you know, here's what I want to kind of put together. Um, you know, you've, I, I love your book. I think you've done a really great job here. Uh, when you finish up, what were the key things that shifted in you? Like, did it influence the way you've lived your life after the fact? Boy, yeah, you know, there's a, there was a, not to, this perhaps is irrelevant, but there's a, a famous French writer, a, a philosopher named Jacques Derrida. Um, no, it wasn't. It was Michel Foucault, another one. And he said, like, um, 
someone someone accused him of contradicting himself in in a, in a book. He said, well, in this other book, you said this other thing. He, he said the purpose of writing a book is to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, I can. Um, so that was maybe a, a pretentious analogy, but I feel the same way, even though I'm not a famous French philosopher. Like, you know, so, <laughs> so, but yeah, absolutely. In the spirit of your question, by the time I got to the end of this, um, I, you know, I, I sort of, it could not, it couldn't help but affect me like going forward. Like I learned a ton. Like when, when you read the book, you might think, well, he knew all this already. And then he just wrote it down. No, I didn't. <laughs> You know, most of the stuff in there, a lot of the science in there um, was, you know, absolutely new, new to me. Um, so, you know, just going right back to that, that letting go example, that that process focus, like that was a message I needed too, um, mm -hmm. because w one of the things I one of the things that makes me that drives my competitive side is a desire to earn the respect of other people. Um, and that's natural enough, but ultimately it's kind of shallow, <laughs> mm. you know, and it's like, if that's all it, 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 that can get, you don't want too, em too much emphasis on that kind of mm. thing. Just, you know, impressing other people because you're, you're fast mm. or whatever. So, you know, just, uh, learning all about that research on, on choking and, um, and, you know, Siri Lindley's journey, it just, it made me more conscious of being more process focused, uh, than I had been before. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, just uh, I'm in a slightly different place as an athlete and a coach as well. Um, you know, I'm more sensitive. And another thing that came out of it is I'm much more sensitive to some of the, the differences between male and female athletes. Mm. Not that all not that all women are the same and all men are the same. But there are some there are some general differences that, you know, that Venus and Mars thing that, that, yeah. that you encounter. Um, and it was really interesting to just, you know. To, you know, because some of the stories I had tried, I went for gender balance in 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 the stories I told, and I noticed, you know, there were certain themes coming up. Like men tended to deal with certain kinds of issues, and, and women more often would tend uh, to deal with different sort of uh, other kinds of issues. So that was sort of an unexpected thing that came out of it. That's really helped me as a coach, because I I'm a guy, I think like a guy, and sometimes yeah. I need to put myself in another person's perspective and have a little empathy for people who aren't, you know, exactly like I am. Yeah, well, guys, it's a really great book. If if you want to get it, it's on Amazon. You go, I've got to put the link to Matt's website also on the show notes for this. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Um, I, I really recommend the book. You know, it's one of those books where you read, and you know the way he's written it, it is kind of you identify with a lot of it, even though it is elite people. It is still just a human struggle, really, isn't it? And 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 ultimately really what it is is a bit of human struggle in each chapter around a certain focus and then there's some kind of ways of thinking about things which ultimately hopefully opens you up to kind of moving forward and that's ultimately i suppose the goal of the book isn't it yeah very much so yeah if there were only a book for other elite athletes uh that would be a pretty small readership. Yeah, I think, it, I think, yeah, I think, I think it's a book for for humans for sure. And and if you want to check out Matt's prolific amount of work, you just go to Amazon. He's got like a million books on there. He's basically just Amazon.com. So uh, <laughs> I'll check that out. I'll put a link to all his work on on, on the show notes. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Thanks, Bevan. So that was my interview with Matt Fitzgerald. Hopefully you got a lot out of that. And again, if you want to go to my website, bevanjamesisles.com, you'll see a link to his book there. And uh, I really enjoyed the book. I really did. It's really interesting. I, I feel in my own life in this last moment, you know, last moment probably being the last six to ten months of my life, I've I've found another level. I really do. I think I've found another level in being that higher level self. And there's this kind of idea of this kind of um, I'm just kind of nailing life. 
and I don't I don't want to sound arrogant in how I'm doing this because it, and what do I mean by na- nailing life? I'm just in a way where I'm living life almost to the best of my ability most of the time. And what I mean by that is kind of whatever I'm focusing on, I'm doing it to high levels and I feel the progress. And and probably the thing that I'm doing really well in this moment of time that maybe I haven't done in the past is I'm doing this consistently. Like I'm staying in this place consistently. And some of the methods I've talked about on the show, the whole idea of thinking about how I want to feel after the fact has become a real way to drive myself in my life. You know, some of my planning tools have gone to the next level. Level, But some of the stuff that Matt talks about in his book really kind of resonated with how I was feeling. This whole idea of reminding yourself that you love the challenge. Reminding yourself, you know, I did this run last week where I went up. We've got a beautiful trail here, which is called Kennedy's Bush. And it's it's a kind of from the bottom to the top for me. It takes, you know, there and back takes just about an hour. and But it's a beautiful off-road challenging trail at times so it's some quite steep parts and I woke up on Friday morning and I just thought to myself man I get to have this challenge today I get to have this challenge and how am I going to make it as exciting as possible and I I went out I did the run I had a great run had pumping music it was beautiful it was actually overcast and drizzly but it was quite beautiful to run in and in the past I may have got that run done but it would have started with resistance and something about the way I've shifted my focus I don't seem to experience resistance as much anymore. And I just want to be moving towards this way I'm doing things. And maybe that's one of the reasons I'm experiencing this place, which I have to admit I'm loving, um, that I'm consistently living in. So it's kind of the momentum of its building because I feel I'm having more success. And uh, so just some of the tools that Matt shared and some of the tools that obviously I've talked about on this show are really helping me find consistency within a higher level of self. And then ultimately, that opens me up to possibility. And I love that. It kind of My belief in my possibilities and my opportunities grow when I can consistently be a higher level version of myself. So I don't know. I just want to share that with you guys. Um, if you want to become a patron of the show, you go to bevanjamesisles.com. Again, all the patrons who are patrons, you are rock stars. There's no denying it. And it really supports me in what I'm doing. Uh, I have been talking over the last few episodes about this online course that I'm doing and that will be coming out probably February, March, early next year. Um, I'm really excited about it to be honest. It's about getting people moving and it is targeted at a very specific market but I just want to, you know, I'm I'm trying to do a great work and I want to make sure it's a product that will, you know, I've talked about on this show, my measure is do I help you change? That's my measure as a content creator or someone who tries to help people grow and I want to make this product that helps people achieve big goals. So I'm pretty excited about what's happening there, but I'll let you know further about that in the future. I'm going to wrap this show up now, but I'm actually going to put the second interview on with Matt, and then after that, the music's done and we're gone. So that's enough of me today. Let's get back to Matt. He's going to be talking about nutrition, and actually while I'm here, I might just quickly talk for a second because I'm going to talk a little bit about the second book. Oh, no, I think I do in the interview. The second book that he's releasing in late December, I'm really looking forward to it. I'll be getting hold of it straight away and I'm going to have a read of it because I think it's pretty good in this stuff. So check it out. Go to Bevan James Owls for the latest links and I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks back for the Bevan show and maybe I'll go a bit more detail on kind of the consistency of maintaining higher level self. And here's Matt Fitzgerald part two with nutrition. Okay, team, I'm pretty excited to have um, a name that pretty much I guarantee everybody on this audience knows. He's been probably one of the biggest influences in endurance sports for many years now. He's, he's How many books have you written? 
Um, if you count ones I, I've co-authored, you know, collaborated uh, with other people on, I actually don't know. It's in the, <laughs> it's, it's in the upper 20s. Well, this, it's, it's actually, it's not even a question I like answering because like the number is so ridiculously large. I, I fear that it gives people the impression that I don't put any effort into them and just they're all pulp. Uh, which I hope is not the case, but I love writing books, so I keep doing it. What yeah. can I say? Yeah, well, Matt Fitzgerald, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, uh, what is your process for writing? Because you 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 are quite prolific, and they seem to come out on a pretty consistent basis. Is it very much just a routine base, or do you kind of how do you go about doing it? Yeah, well, it starts with just uh, you know having lots of ideas. You know, just being a curious person who's very passionate about you know the subject matter I write about, uh, endurance sports. Um, and so, you know, I've always got, take right now, for example, there are three books I want to write. And, and in fact, I'm sort of working on in different stages right now, just because like, I'm excited about all of the ideas and I feel like the world needs this book. So, so that's, that's crucial because if you have discipline and the ability to write, but no ideas, not, you're not going to, you're not going to generate many books, but also I am very, um, I'm just, you know, I, I approach, I guess, writing much in the way I approach endurance sports, which is like just chipping away a little bit a, a day. You know, it's just amazing how much progress you make. If, you know, if you look at, you know, four months of training for an event, like if, if by the end of that, not trying to do it all at once, you know, uh, on any given day, uh, just being consistent and disciplined, uh, you can build you know, the fitness to finish an Ironman or, or what have you. And, and writing books is the same way. You don't have to write an entire chapter every day. But if you just do something every day, it adds up. Well, I think it's pretty admirable because I know we're not really here to talk about writing books. But actually, I think the, the most people have the problem of doing the work. You know, the idea is never the problem. You know, you, I've heard yeah. many people say to me, I've got a million ideas. I just can never make them work. And, you know, to build that muscle of the skill of doing the work is something that a lot of people really lack. And uh, obviously you've developed it really strongly in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a hard job, you know, filling empty pages because we all have to do it, you know, in school or whatever. And, you know, even if, if that is your gift, it's still hard work, you know, it's, it's not easy. And it, it, it can, there can be like a love hate sort of like training, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you don't always want to do that workout. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the rewards definitely, um, if it is your thing, which it is mine, you know, the, the rule, it's all worthwhile in the end. So, so your latest book's called The Endurance Diet, Discover the Five Core Habits of the World's Greatest Athletes to Look, Feel, and Perform Better. What, what was the idea, you know, you say, you know, I kind of get these ideas in my head. I know you've done other books on nutrition in the past. What was the seed that got planted in your head around this book? Yes, yeah, so, you know, as a sports nutritionist and someone who writes about, uh, you know, um, nutrition for endurance um and also helps athletes with their nutrition and diet um one thing you know this pattern that i've noticed you know for years now which just struck me as really sort of odd is that um as a group uh professional endurance athletes you know true elite athletes tend to kind of eat a certain way um and then competitive recreational athletes eat a completely different way oh wow and it's just you know, it's so or in a number of different ways. So if you know, the shortest description of the typical elite endurance athletes diet is a high quality version of a culturally normal diet. So if you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time studying the diets of a lot of elite endurance athletes. And at first blush, you don't notice anything 
It's just like, well, you know, I, I traveled all over the world to research this book. So if I'm eating with Kenyans, Kenyan runners, they're eating Kenyan food. You know, when, when I'm when I'm eating with Canadian cross country skiers, it looks recognizably Canadian. But you take a closer look and it's like, oh, all the grains are whole grains and it's, uh, you know, water or, you know, one glass of wine versus a soft drink, you know, that, that they're washing it down with. So but then, you know, the problem I deal with all the time in trying to help recreational, you know, competitive recreational endurance athletes is they get, they all go for these fad diets. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it can be like, you know, eliminating this, eliminating that, or, you know, doing all these things that are, you know, extreme in one direction or another that the world's best athletes just aren't doing, or, um, they're just eating what in this country would be, you know, the standard American diet, which is, you know, culturally normal, but not high quality. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so, you know, fast food, burgers and all that. And, and sometimes it's both. So people will think, oh, I need to fix my diet and they'll do something extreme and it's unsustainable. And then they'll, you know, pinball back to, you know, a low quality uh, American diet. So this, there's this weird dichotomy where you think like, why don't, why doesn't everyone just do what works for the most successful athletes? And you know, and part of what muddies the waters for me is that so much of the the nutrition advice, you know, when you have, you know, if you have other, you know, endurance diet gurus peddling a shtick <laughs> to endurance athletes, they'll sell it with science, right? It's always science. Like, oh, well, you know, this, because of this little biochemical story, we can tell like, this is the way everyone should eat. And it's something extreme that doesn't work for, for many people. And so I, I really got tired of, you know, science being used to uh, pedal extreme diets to endurance athletes that ultimately just didn't didn't do them any good. So with this book, I wanted to sort of shift the entire terms of the debate and almost say, I mean, there's plenty of science in this book, but it's not, I'm not leading with science. It's just more of like a monkey see, monkey do argument where I'm just like, I'm showing you, I'm giving you a seat at the table with um, uh, you know, truly elite endurance athletes in all disciplines from, you know, triathlon to rowing and all continents, um, all over the world. And you see this consistent pattern where it's just like, you know, normal, but, but, but very high quality balanced, not that hard to sustain and just making the argument. And by the way, the science does support these habits when you, when you get to that, but I really want to lead with a sort of like a monkey see monkey do argument. It's like, why not just uh, you know, do what seems to work best for for the best. So, so ultimately, you're saying that you know the pro, the top athletes. It's it's actually not that pretty. Kind of, we could, we could almost identify what they're doing if we were just to sit and think logically about it. Yeah. So, you know, this has already been done with, and this is part of what inspired me to write the book. Is um, it, this has already been done with training. Um, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called 80-20 Running. Um, and 80-20 refers to a, a, a balance of intensity. Um, and so there's a there's a, a exercise physiologist. He's actually American, but he's based in Norway named Steven Seiler. So sort of early in his career, he thought, you know, why don't I try and find out exactly rigorously, quantitatively how elite endurance athletes actually train? So he embarked on this project to like, you know, to, you know, slap heart rate monitors on, you know, elite Kenyan runners for a week and see like how much of their training was at a physiologically defined low intensity versus moderate versus high. 
Uh, and other, other people have done similar types of research, but in a balkanized, scattered sort of way where Seiler wanted to see, like, is there a common pattern? Because, you know, there's a difference between, you know, swimming and cross-country skiing. Obviously, there are surface differences, but they're all cousins. You know, they're all endurance sports. So generally, if there is such a thing as an, an, an optimal method of training, there should be a family resemblance. And, and he found exactly that, that um, and it wasn't true generations ago, you know. Previous generations of endurance athletes trained in all kinds of different ways, and swimmers didn't necessarily train the same way as as runners. Mm. Uh, but there was this evolution and a convergence where now virtually all of the world's elite endurance athletes in all disciplines do 80% of their training at low intensity, 20% at, at moderate to high intensity. In biology, they, they refer to this phenomenon as convergent evolution, and it's pretty much the most powerful real world, world evidence you can come up with that nature has an optimal solution to the problem. So you don't really need science to get there. And in fact, you can't really necessarily deduce optimal solutions to complex real world problems. You just have to run, you have to run the experiment in nature and it's just kind of trial and error, which is no good if you're, you know, uh, Johnny Weissmuller, the best swimmer from the 1920s, <laughs> which is just too early for these methods to have been discovered. So, but for us, it's an advantage because that's, that problem has basically been solved. So, Basically, I wanted to do the same thing with diet that Steven Seiler had done. You know, I'm not, I don't have a PhD in exercise science, so my process wasn't as rigorous as his, but I wanted to see, you know, are there core patterns there? Because, you know, diet obviously matters to performance just as much as training does. So if there is a true optimal, if, if there is something that that works better than other alternatives, presumably, you know, the best athletes in the world in, in 2016 have found it. Uh, so that's what I went in, uh, looking for. So so the, the big topic right now is this kind of the low carb, high fat kind of diet is, is, is all the trend. Um, so are you finding with these elite people that's the experience? Yeah, I, I didn't find um, any athletes outside of ultra running. <laughs> The, um, which is a, a bit of an outlier, but outside of ultra running, I, I didn't find any athlete who is on such a diet, you know, like as their base diet. I did find, um, especially in, in cycling, some athletes will do a, a brief period of, of low, like a, a very, you know, in the off season typically or, or pre-base season, maybe a, a short phase of low carbohydrate eating. And also, you know, selected carbohydrate restriction around certain key workouts. But um, of the of the five key habits that are, you know, identified in the subtitle of the book, one of them is is uh, eating carbohydrate centered. So that's that's what I found is that you, for their base diet for you know the world's best endurance athletes, breakfast, lunch, and dinner are centered on some some one or more you know high quality high carbohydrate foods. The reason I think ultra running is an outlier um, is that that sport just isn't as competitive as as some of the others oh, are because okay. because it's a sub discipline within running. Um, so it's actually um, think about it like if if you're a male marathoner and you're and you can run a 209 marathon, you're going to run marathons. You're not going to run ultra marathons. Now I uh, so if you look at you know elite level, a couple of weeks ago I won an ultra marathon. That's weird. I'm not really, <laughs> I'm not really athlete, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I, I it, this is offensive for some people when I make this point, but it's just, it's just a cold hard reality. Is that ultra running is getting more and more competitive, but, but just wait when the money and it's getting more competitive in part because there's more money there. 
But when when there's real money there, the Kenyans are going to come <laughs> and their diet is 78% carbohydrate and that's not going to change. And and when the Kenyans start competing in the world's biggest uh, ultra marathons, they're going to win them and they're going to win them on a high carb diet. So so your thoughts on the high carb diet then? On the low, low, low carb diet? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's... um. Um, I think it's largely cultural in nature. You know, a, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Diet Cults, mm. which is it's really about the phenomenon of of people of how, ira- how irrational people are about food and, and diet and how the decisions we make to eat a certain way are largely about identity. Uh, you know, it's like group belonging and even sort of like a, it's a moral compass for a lot of people. Um, you, you find a lot of the, um, again, I'm just digging deeper and deeper on this stuff. Well, well, no, here. because it's interesting, isn't it? Because like you write about kind of movement and you write about diet. A- and I imagine when you write about movement, you probably don't get much kind of pushback. But I imagine right. when you write about diet, because it is like I, I interviewed a guy who did the book, The Gluten Lie, which was a very good book because he was basically a religious studies guy. And he was looking at how re- the kind of how religions build build kind of, followings and he then he transferred that into what's happening in dietary kind of stuff and it was really interesting talking to him because he was saying how just the amount of kind of anger you get at yourself because you're going to put this out there and I imagine for you you probably experienced a bit of that you know the fact that you're kind of saying well you know maybe this isn't the way or or it's more of a cultural thing I imagine you get a lot of kind of resistance to that yeah it's hard to navigate you know because Uh, you know, and that's, that's part of the reason I write, I guess, you know, I've chosen to write some of the things I have and I've written them in the way I have is because, you know, one of my roles is to help athletes perform better through diet. So, you know, Mm. I'm trying to help them. (laughs) And, and what makes my job very difficult is that there's all these other voices out there contradicting mine. Mm. So I found that like, I, I have to devote half my energy not just to telling athletes what to do, but to distinguishing myself from, you know, you know, from others, like establishing credibility because mm. people are like, why should I believe you? You know, it's like, um, so that's part of, you know, what, what motivates me to just, it affects the, the, the style as much as it does the substance of, of what I write. You know, if, you, if people who read, um, you know, the, the endurance diet, they'll find that it doesn't read like a, diet book you know it's just like i'm sort of i'm sort of getting out of the way and and just uh, just kind of it's more of a show don't tell the stars of the show um are the athletes that i'm you know i, I travel around the world you know eating with a lot of them also just did i have filled out surveys for me because i couldn't i couldn't afford unfortunately to go to every country on earth <laughs> so i collected a lot of information remotely but you know it's just sort of like a different approach you know, in order to overcome that problem where, you know, people are so, they're biased really, you know, and we all are to some degree, but you can at least try to account for your biases and overcome them in, in that way. And so, yeah, that's that's part of the reason, you know, I I did this book and have done others in, in, in the way I have. So, you know, so you're saying that there's this kind of contrast between what we're seeing with the elite people and, and actually, it's not that complicated and, and it might be really simple if we kind of simplify things. Um, but at the same time, the age grouper is, or the, the, the non-professional elite athlete is kind of always, it's a completely different thing. So why do you think that happens? 
Yeah, um, I think I know exactly why it happens. Um, and uh, the way I explain it in the book is that I, I give an example. Um, and the example I use is, and she's very, very typical. Uh, her name is Molly Huddle. Uh, she's America's best female uh, distance runner now. She just, she set an American record for 10,000 meters in the Olympics in Rio. Um, and um, so she grew up, as, as she told me, just sort of on a standard American diet, you know, just a lot of, you know, breakfast breakfast cereal with sugar and white bread on sandwiches and it was i mean it was okay but like it, it left something to be desired and you know that's normal so she just happened to be born with rare genes that set her up to have you know the potential to be a great distance runner so what happens when you know if you have that level of talent and i don't care what country you live in or which specific endurance discipline you know catches your fancy when you start competing you win because you're way more talented. It doesn't matter if mom's cooking leaves something to be desired nutritionally. It doesn't matter at that point. And the same thing happens all, you know, all the way through high school, usually all the way through college. And sure enough, you know, Molly Huddle, despite, and her diet got even worse in college when, you know, she, you know, like a, <laughs> like a lot of college yeah. students, you'd be having breakfast cereal for dinner. Because yeah, you're poor. <laughs> <laughs> poor and lazy. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, yeah, and, and young. Um, so, and, and, and so this is all very typical, you know, she just is thanks to her talent and her work ethic, you know, she continues to win all the way through the end of college. Then she turns professional and she joins a team based in, in Providence, Rhode Island, and she starts getting her butt kicked for the first time in her life. And she's like, well, this, I don't like this <laughs> what's happening, you know, not just in races, but her training partners, you know, she was with a team of, of other athletes who were kicking her butt. So she did the very the natural thing is she looked around at what they were doing that she wasn't she knew she had the talent. It's like what are they doing that I'm not doing? Well, it wasn't training because they all had the same coach. What she noticed was that they were eating differently than her. Um, uh, part of it actually in Molly's case, yes, her diet quality was low, so she wasn't eating a lot of vegetables, but she also wasn't eating enough. Um, she, she knows that like these, these little women, you know, 110 pounders were just packing away like very substantive meals. So she she did not what she did not do is go to a bookstore and buy a diet book and say, OK, I'm going to go on this diet. She actually made she changed her own diet in the, the fewest possible ways in order to make it more like the diets of the people who were beating her. So it was not starting over, just throwing out everything that was familiar to her, throwing out everything she liked. It wasn't that at all. She's just like, okay, what's the least I need to do in order to make this disadvantage go away? Hmm. Um, and, you know, she she went from getting her butt kicked to when she's won like 13 or 16 national championship titles now. Um, so, you know, it, it, it works. So that's how it, that's how it happens. If you if you are in the pipeline that elite athletes come up through, mm. that's how it happens. But think about like someone who starts running as an, an adult or gets into triathlon as an adult. Um, you know, they, they don't have all that background. So what they do is they might be 20 pounds overweight. So it's very easy to come to someone like that and say, well, well, the reason you're not a better triathlete is because you eat meat. Mm. And, 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 and how, how are they, how are they going to know that, 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 that's not true? So mm. they, they just thought they have a, a recreational endurance athletes have a completely different background and, and experiences and milieu, you know, they just, they're not surrounded by, um, elite athletes mm. with setting an example of, of, you know, a perfectly easy, 
and sensible way to, to eat for performance. So it's just, a you know, we're, we sort of live in different worlds, the, the elites and the rest of us. And I think it really does account for why, you know, the elites, they just they just pass it down. You know, it's just this lore for yeah. not, you know, not diet and training. It's just like, here's what works. We know it. <laughs> yeah. So I can look beside me if I'm elite and I can just kind of do what's beside me. Whereas if I'm not elite, I'm kind of looking anywhere and whatever seems most appealing, that's going to give me the quickest answer is what I'm going to jump on. Right. Yep. Yeah. What about race day, race day fueling then for those elite athletes, you know, do you go into that detail in this book? Is it, you know, what I'm going to do on race day, is it difference between the elite people in your typical age grouper? Uh, yes. So, I mean, the, the book is pretty squarely focused on Everyday general nutrition. diet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I do, you know, just, uh, I, I do get into, there's one chapter where I get into some, some of, some of the fine tuning. Um, because what I found is that, you know, for most elite endurance athletes, it's interesting. They don't spend all day worrying about food. You know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of, well, no, no, because this is my thing right now. Because I, I eat a standard diet. I'm not. I've never done any diets. So I've, um, and I'm not a nutritionist, so I always think you know, just because I do this doesn't mean it's the answer. But I always maintain a lean body weight. I never put on weight. I, I don't worry. But one of the things I have, and I, I eat healthy food and not too much. Really, that's about it. Um, but I also have a bit of crap. You know, like a bit of chocolate. So I have some chocolate and so on. But one thing I've made a rule is. Never think about what I've eaten after I've eaten because I've, my, my energy is much better to go on empowering my life. And yes. I remember when paleo came out, I thought I'm going to try it because just because I thought, you know, and I did a week of it and I found I was thinking about what I was eating all the time. And I just thought to myself, A, I don't need to worry about this because I'm healthy, but B, what a waste of my life thinking about my food all the time. <laughs> you know, like I'd much rather be on my piano empowering my piano playing or, or focusing on how I'm going to train or focusing on the work I'm doing than worrying about food and, and to me that's one of the downfalls of this moment is that for those who are so concerned about what i should be eating half their life's going on what i'm eating and it's like what a waste of your life right yeah so you know we've, we've gone a little sideways from your original question yeah. but i i'm actually I'm, I'm glad for it because the I, I will say the most when i started writing this book i already sort of knew the answer to the question i was asking because mm. of previous experience you know i knew there was a there there but the the, the most surprising thing I did discover in, in the process of, of doing all the research, and it was a monumental you know, research effort, um, was the psychological side of it. You know, what I found was, you know, not just, it's not just that there are common patterns, dietary patterns shared by athletes at this level, but there's also a common psychology, which is, which is just that. It's like, it's just habits. You know, it's just, they, they, they all like the way they eat. They're not wrestling with it. It's just, you know, this is what I have for lunch and I like it. And after I eat lunch, I'm my mind is on the next workout. Whereas with the um, you know, the recreational athletes that I help individually with their diet, so much of what they're unhappy with the way they eat. And, and often it's, you know, they're looking to diet for solutions to problems that aren't really dietary in nature in the first place. But then that will that will actually attract them to some of the more extreme offerings out there, and and that exacerbates the problem. You know, sometimes it leads straight into a full blown eating disorder. Mm. You know, not always, but often it's just like you know they, they sabotage their own training um, through this completely unnecessary process. And and often I want to I I never do, but often I want to tell the athletes my prescription for you: don't change anything about the way you eat but spend 80% time, less time thinking about food. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I say that only half in jest because I, I've never encountered 
anyone who was unhappy with their diet and was able to sustain a healthy diet over a long period of time. You, you absolutely have to have both. And very often um, you'll get the most benefit from focusing on just being a happy eater first. Mm. Um, and the rest can kind of sort itself out because it's not not that complicated. So that's a major theme in the book is just this psychological element, element and just kind of, um, you know, being humane with with yourself and, and you know, just recognizing that you it's okay uh, to in, enjoy food. In fact, you should uh, because you're not going to be eating healthy five years from now if you're miserable with your diet today. Mm. So let's go because I love the discussion. Um, but let's go back to the race day. <laughs> so, right. so, so, so race day. What's what's the plan kind of there? What's the difference? Yeah, so, maybe. Yeah. So that there's an example of where it's this. You know, the point I was just making almost gets turned on its head. Where you know, elite athletes again, their livelihood is on the line when they race. So they they typically are 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 meticulous with with you know their their race day fueling. They they look to the science. They're often guided directly by scientists or by coaches who are informed by them. Um, and then they do basically what the research says works best. Um, and, you know, in terms of like, you know, characteristic dis differences, um, you see a lot of the elite athletes really just cramming in as much fuel as they, as they can, whereas I wrote this article recently that's sort of tangentially related. It was um, it was the purpose of race day nutrition or the purpose of race nutrition because again, because there's you have these cultural silos where you know the elites are over here and, and the rest of us are over here and we they're you know we never meet in the middle. You have a lot of especially lately you have a lot of the sort of the adult starters, people who come to endurance sports as adults who actually don't even get the purpose of race nutrition. The the, the purpose is to get you to the finish line faster. But a lot of them think it's like to to be healthy. It's like, no, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not healthy. It gets you to the finish line faster. There's a there's a time for healthy or more and more. I see like the purpose of race nutrition is to prevent stomach discomfort. No, it's not. I don't care how uncomfortable my stomach is if I PR, you know, what I mean, yeah. so you get weird stuff going on where people will like take in less carbs or taking things other than carbs, you know, in order to like make their tummy happy and the elites are like hey whatever it takes you know i don't care if i have to drink my own blood <laughs> yeah, yeah. if it's legal you know i mean so that's just you know that's an example of a difference where you'll see you know the research says in longer races two and a half hours and longer uh kind of 90 grams of carbs per hour is the ceiling it's it's a dose response effect so like the more you can take in, the more you can absorb mm. without severe gastrointestinal discomfort, the faster you'll get to the finish line. So you see them doing, you know, doing what the science says. And whereas a lot of, you know, recreational athletes, not so much. Hmm. Um, how would you describe this book as being different to what you've done in the past? Um, well, I guess, you know, the, 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 there's a, a natural evolution, but um, the, probably the biggest difference, the one that, you know, if you pick it up and start reading it, you'll, you'll notice uh, right off the bat is there, there's sort of like, uh, it's sort of like a travelogue. It, it's like Anthony Bourdain meets Matt Fitzgerald or, or you know, yeah. where it's, I wanted to, again, you know, as a, I, 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 it's dangerous for me to say this, but I, I do, <laughs> I do consider myself a writer first and an expert second, uh, you know, writing is the thing I cannot live without. So when I write a book, I want it to be an interesting experience to read it. Not, not just useful, but, you know, I want the five hours you devote to 
getting from one cover to the other to be time well spent, just mm-hmm. enjoyable in your seat on the airplane uh, or, or wherever you happen to be reading it. So I wanted to, um, I, I knew I knew what I wanted to do in the book, but I made the commitment to um, to travel to places and to show people the places and tell stories about the athletes I'm with. You know, I, I had, you know, I went to Kenya for two weeks and it just had, you know, an amazing experience. You know, you know, I don't want to give away the, the whole book, but, you know, so there's, there's fun stuff in there. There's almost like a voyeuristic element where like, uh, you know, you, I'm, you see me in Spain at a, a January training camp for one of the top cycling teams in the world, just like full access, you yeah, know, to their wow. athletes, kitchens. Yeah. Um, just, you know, Even, and then so you, you get to be there too. And that's, that, that's, I guess, a kind of a fun, different aspect of, of this book. Not that you want to give away what it was like in the book, because obviously we want people to buy the book, oh. but, but what is it like being in Kenya, like in that world? Because it, it's, it just seems so, I don't know, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. I guess, you know, to, to give you one vignette, the one that I was going to withhold. <laughs> <laughs> Got it out of here. <laughs> Well, it paints the picture because, you know, before I went there, you know, I, I had never been there before. So I just I wanted to soak up the experience. I actually ran a marathon while I was there. Wow. So I was doing more than one thing, but it was. But, yeah, but you didn't win that one. No, but I was <laughs> the first Mzungu, which means first white person. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, but not the first person. <laughs> no, no. Um, so yeah, but it was research for me, so I couldn't come back empty handed. So I was a little uptight before I went there and I was contacting people I knew, you know, who, um, athletes who had trained there, coaches who had been there and said like, you know, I want to set things up. You know, I want to know, uh, I wanted to talk to some big name athletes, you know, while I was there and, and come away with good material. And there, and all of them said, oh, just go there and figure it out. I'm like, are you kidding me? And they're like, trust me. <laughs> really? So I went there and we made a trip up to Iten, uh, which is like, it's really the hub. It's like, I don't know, it's like Memphis or Nashville for country music, you know, for, for, for them. For like, if, you, if you're an aspiring elite Kenyan runner, you go to Iten okay. to try and make it big. So I went there and we stayed at um, a high altitude training center run by uh, Lorna Kiplagat, a former half marathon world record holder. And you know, I was asking people around, it's like, hey, I want to talk to some big name athletes. And one of them said, well, Wilson Kipsang has a hotel right down the road. And he's the former world record holder uh, in the marathon. And actually recently almost almost broke it again. He's run 20303 or something wow. like that. Wow. Yeah. And so I just I just walk down the road to the hotel, walk inside and and go to the reception desk and just said, I want to talk to, to Wilson Kipsang. Uh Short time later, I was in his office wow. <laughs> and the guy, he, he would have been, he would have given me all day. Like I was, I was interrupting him. He was busy. I could tell, like he had like his manager in there and there was some, they were trying to put out some kind of fire, like involving <laughs> the computer and getting paid for something. And, yeah. but it was funny. Like I just had, he served me tea. He, you know, I, I, you know, whatever I wanted to ask him, you know, he, you know, so it was just stuff like that. Um, uh, even if the book sucks, I've got that. <laughs> oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure the book doesn't suck. So, so ultimately, basically, you think this is a for the person who wants to read this book is who? Um, I, it's really for um, you know, it, it's really uh, this sounds self-serving, but I think it's for anyone who does cardiovascular exercise. Honestly, yeah. Um, you know, a question you haven't asked me that when I present this concept to people that a lot of people do ask, and perhaps it was on your list is. Well, okay, you know, 
I understand that elite endurance athletes eat a certain way, but they're made out of space materials. Like they're not, they're, they're not even human in the way I am. So how could that possibly apply to me? And there's a very good answer to that. I mean, there's, it's a multi-part answer. One is they're not as different as you think. Um, you know, we, you know, uh, geneticists have identified a lot of the genes that make elite athletes different from us. And it's not that many, and it's not the same for all of them. So we, we tend to think we tend to lump them all together. Well, there's as much diversity, genetic diversity among elite endurance athletes as there is in the rest of the world. And, um, and those genes that do make them different by and large have nothing to do with how they digest and metabolize food. They're about things like uh, muscle fiber types and, um, you know, height and weight, you know, th things like that. But it's like, basically, by and large, um, you know, what works for them does work for us. And there is a growing amount, a growing body of research that demonstrates that there's also there's nothing particularly, I mean, if you take these five habits, I've identified, which one would you say we should do the opposite of, you know, it's like, the five are eat everything, eat quality, eat carbohydrate centered, eat enough, and eat individually. And that last one's important because yes, we are different, but we're not, it's not that all recreational athletes are one way and all elites are another. No, we're all different, you know, across the board. So we need to find, you know, the, the first four habits sort of set up the, the boundaries that we need to explore within. Mm -hmm. But then that last habit, eating individually, is where we were sort of on our own journey to, to fine tune. Mm -hmm. So you know, basically what my argument is that not only do the elites eat a certain way, which all the evidence suggests is optimal for them, but that anyone who does engages in vigorous cardiovascular exercise is basically a part of that family and what works for them will work for us, you know, given, you know, the individuality factor. Mm, well, I, I, I'm really excited to get the book. The book doesn't actually come out till late December, does it? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> the perfect Christmas gift for the- <laughs> does, Well, it's got here, it comes out 27th. Does it come out before that? When does it actually- yeah, usually it's available, like, you know, publishing dates used to mean something, you yeah, know, when, yeah. we all, when we all bought our books from bookstores. Uh, now they're sort of, it's sort of a, a moving target. Usually the book is available a little bit before that date. I suppose one thing to say to people, because, you know, like, I'm sure, as you said, you know, eat carbohydrate is one of the key messages here that, you know, those people who are kind of attached to a certain way of thinking are kind of instantly re rejecting it. And I think ultimately we've got to go into these things with an open mind, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the, on the, you know, to dig a little bit deeper on the, the carbohydrate, um, I, you know, carbohydrate, when I deal with athletes, well, two things. One is if I were to, <laughs> if I were to identify a single problem that athletes come to me more often with than any other, it's having their training sabotaged by a low carbohydrate diet. Uh, okay. um, so the, the, the people who swear by a low carb diet are very loud about it. <laughs> yeah. But for, but for every one of those, there's like 20 people who crash and burn on those diets. And, and I, I kind of have to pick up the pieces often. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work for a lot of people. Also, I'll say that insofar as carbs don't work for a lot of people or they think they don't work, they're they're blaming low quality carb. They're blaming all carbs for low quality carbs. So mm. what I do with athletes is I just like, you know, often if you go in a low carb diet, you, you'll say, well, in, in as much as this was successful, it's because carbs are bad. Mm. But really all the credit should go to, to remove, you stop drinking yeah. Coke and eating Hostess Ding Dongs. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, if you just, if you only do high quality carbs you get the best of both worlds because the carbs are rocket fuel for for endurance and you know that the uh 
you know, the high quality foods, you know, again, the research is there, good for health, good for, for performance, you know, your, your fruit, your, your dairy, your, your whole, your whole grains. Um, so that's a little more, that puts a little more meat on that bone to mix metaphors. Yeah, nice. Well, well, well thanks for coming on the show, Matt. And, and next time you've got a book out, we'd love to get you back on again, because you're, you're doing great work and you've got a great body of work. And I imagine in two years from now, you have 50 books out. So, you know, that's how, that's how you seem to roll. Yep, I'm working my way toward it. Awesome, mate. Thanks for your time.